Hey everybody, welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. So excited to be with you here today. And it's a good day today. I have Nathan with me. Hello, Nathan. Hello, Valerie. How are you? Good. It's so good to see you here today. Yes. Nice to be back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always like to weave him into the lineup as I have been so fortunate. It's been such a joy to get to know so many authors and theologians and speakers that come on, but I don't ever want too many episodes to go by without the conversations that I so enjoy preparing with you, Nathan Hammaker. So I'm so grateful that you're here today and actually, ooh, are we going to have a good time because the individual that we are going to talk about is just one of our favorites. Is that fair to say? I know he's one of my favorites, but is he one of your favorites too? What would you say to that? Absolutely. 100%. Um, when I, when people ask me, for instance, I have a lot of, of men in our groups that will reach out to me and ask me what I read or mm. what my, you know, what are my most influential books? I give them my five most influential books. And this one that we're going to talk about is one of my five. Uh, James Hollis is living an examined life. Um, so I, I think that uh, I am really excited to jump into this chapter that you selected. Me too. I just cannot speak highly enough of James Hollis. And I know I probably, my credibility is probably low because I do in fact have a lot of favorite books and a lot of favorite authors. This is true. Um, I'm pretty fast and loose with my favorite, with the word favorite, <laughs> uh, but I do have a lot of favorites. I feel like that's true. Having said that though, this, this man and this man's work has truly changed my life yeah. and it, it just really has. And as I was actually, I, I went through a period of time and I want to say it was right in the thick of COVID when we were all, you know, sheltered in place, doing a lot at home and, you know, not, not out in our normal lives that I became acquainted with him. And I read a book and then I read another book and then I bought another book and then I bought two more books. And I, I dare say, I think I own maybe everything this man has written or very close to it and have read his books so many times. And it's actually this book that we're going to be talking about today was perhaps, and you'll see why here in a minute, as we really break this chapter down, why his philosophy has been absolutely formative in the creation of how I view healthy theology. Mm -hmm. And I can't emphasize enough how much I am in debt to this beautiful man. He is a union analyst. And I dare say he's actually, I like reading James Hollis, helping me understand Jung even better than I like reading Jung, helping me understand Jung, because I've read Jung my, uh, firsthand <laughs> and he's really kind of hard for me to read. He's a, he's a tougher He's not as good of a writer and Hollis is a beautiful writer and is in some ways an interpreter of Carl Jung in, uh, in a way that, uh, Jung is not even able to interpret himself or at least, uh, at least to me, at least to me. So, okay. So today, what we're going to do today and next time, actually, we're going to spend the whole week on this one chapter. We are going to study this concept of constructing a mature spirituality. So Nathan, if you would, why don't you kick us off? <coughs> By just actually giving a little bit of an overview of this book, Living an Examined Life, so that those who want to go out and purchase it can kind of know what they're getting themselves into. Well, for me, the the, the reason why I got into this book is because when I was struggling with some things in, in my life, you recommended it to me. And the gist of the book is this. It says, basically, everything that you're doing, for the most part, you are doing because somebody else told you it was the right thing to do. 
And it was the first book that I really read that gave me permission to take everything in my life and deconstruct it and say, I'm going to get rid of this and I'm going to keep this and I'm going to throw this out and I'm going to keep this. And he just keeps hammering over and over. And he's got these 21 steps, but really what the 21 steps are just sort of different areas of your life to look at, but to deconstruct it and to take back your personal authority and to say, I will only choose things that I actually choose. And anything that I have put in my life because somebody else told me to do it, I'm going to look at it. Maybe I'll keep it, but if I keep it, I'll keep it because I keep it but I will never again choose something because somebody else told me to do it. That, that was the message I got from that book. Well, it was really powerful. What you say, Nathan, I know this was my experience and I'm pretty sure it was yours too. Cause I was, you know, at your site as you were studying this book and we would talk about it is that concept is incredibly radical for a member of the church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> of Latter-day Saints. Like we are not taught to see the world, to view ourselves with that much capacity to be the captains of our own ships. Not at all. Like it was a radical way to think about ourselves. And that is why, as I was thinking about, Ooh, what would be fun to talk about for the next couple of episodes? I thought, you know what, let's go back to the beginning and talk about what has been so transformative for me and Nathan. And so, as I mentioned before, I will uh, get you all the information so you can go pick this book up, which we could not recommend more. But what we're going to do today is we're actually just going to analyze one single of the 21 points that he makes in this book, Living an Examined Life. And it is called Construct a Mature Spirituality. And what I am going to be doing is I'm going to be reading several sections from this book, just a little at a time. And then we're going to go ahead and break them apart and analyze them. Okay. So the thing that he's talking about in terms of, okay, this is what he's wanting us to examine a variety of areas in our lives where we have not taken ownership of our lives. And in this particular chapter, it's spirituality. Okay, so let's go ahead and begin with this. This is what Hollis says. Spirituality is one of the most slippery terms of our times of our time. What does it mean? How does it differ from religion? Are they are they the same? Are they in conflict? And how can we identify spirituality and especially how can we define mature spirituality and who is to say which is which? To address these questions, we first have to raise the question of authority. Who is authorized to make these decisions, ourselves or someone else for us? And what if that authority is inconsistent with our own reality or that which lies deep within us? Historically, the authority lays in the tribe, informed by its elders, its ancestors, its veritable stories. That other tribes had equally compelling authorities, sacred traditions, and the like is only a problem if one asserts the superior truth of one's own received authority and denies the received authority of the other. Or, as Joseph Joseph Campbell wryly observed, myth is other people's religion. Sadly, most tribalism, up to and including the tumultuous religious wars of our own age, again demonstrates that core insecurity of this human animal who cannot get beyond his own internal security management and falls back on the primitive defense that I am right and you are wrong, or my God is the true God and your God is an imposter. Okay, let's take a pause there because boy, do we enjoy that kind of rhetoric in our church. Yeah, so there's a lot to break down here. Uh, the first paragraph is is important because he's he breaks down the difference between spirituality and religion, and then he breaks down the difference between mature spirituality and spirituality. 
right off the bat, he's hit on something that we're not very good at in our church. We have always tried to combine the practice of religion with spiritual growth, spiritual development, personal development. And right off the bat, he's saying, no, you got to separate those two. You got to separate spirituality from the practice of religion. But then he also says you have to separate spirituality from mature spirituality. So there's even a difference there. Now, the first thing he's pointing out is that right off from the beginning, we have developed a very immature spirituality, deeply based in religion, because we have submitted to the authority of other people. Okay, so in this attempt to help us live and examine life, in this attempt to help us take back our personal authority, he's identifying the first place where we gave up our personal authority in our spiritual development, which was to call religion spirituality and then hand authority to the religious leaders. And the results of that is this huge division where spirituality should be uniting us as children of the divine, where spirituality should be uniting us as brothers and sisters. The effect of immature spirituality and authoritarian religion is to create massive divides among ourselves. And so while that seems so obvious, we have all participated in this asinine system. Beautifully said, Nathan. So the immature spiritual, the components of immature spirituality, according to Hollis in this little section here is number one, uh, handing off our authority to the tribe or to the tribal leaders, whatever, whoever they are, and making the assumption that my religion is the right religion. My God is the right God. And therefore yours is wrong. And my spirituality connected with my religion is the only true good and right thing. And therefore you are wrong. Did, right. I, did I miss anything? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and spirituality should be uniting yeah. us yes. as children of the divine, as brothers and sisters. We should be connecting with each other. We should be connecting with our world and our nature and with our, um, you know, cultures and, and, and across different religions and, and political divides and immature spirituality with these divisive religions and handing our authority to other people to think for us is doing exactly the opposite. And that should be a red flag. So let's just spend a couple of seconds talking about why we are so vulnerable to this, because, you know, I'm about ready to state the obvious here, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. We're not the only ones that have done this. Everyone has done this since pretty much the beginning of time. They've created a tribe. They've codified their belief system. They've created tribal leaders and they've done this in order to, and they've divided themselves um, against one another. Uh, I would go so far to me, and you can push back or tell me or add to what I'm about to say, Nathan, but to me, I feel like this is very self-protective, right? It's, it's an, it's a, it's a system of anxiety management to, gather my truths, gather my people, make my beliefs right, make my leaders holy so that I can be protected from a very scary, insecure, unknowable world. That's right. It's all a system of fear modification. Okay. James Hollis termed another, uh, coined another term I think is really good to use here, which is the magical other. So the idea of the magical other is that when, when we were little children, and we were dependent on our parents to take care of us. We were dependent on our parents to feed us and clothe us and educate us and help us learn how to get into society. But we never leave that stage. Many of us don't ever leave that stage of wanting a big, grown-up, smarter-than-me, magical person who's strong and, and, and 
you know, righteous and, and everything that I can't become myself. I need you. Has all the answers. They have, yeah, good. They have all the yeah. answers. I need that magical person with all the answers, right? It's, it's the, it's the song from the sound of music. I, I will depend mm. on you. I'm, I am 15 going on 16, but you're 16 going on 17. Mm -hmm. I will depend on you. And, and, you know, the guy's like, well, I'll take care of you. He, but he loved that. Uh, and that's a system that we're born into by necessity, but we often don't ever leave it. We don't realize that that is a developmentally appropriate stage for a very, very temporary period right. of time. When you're five, it's great. Yeah. When you're 55, snap out. Well, and I think people take that philosophy and they move it into marriage. Yes. They move it into the workforce. Absolutely. They move it into their political party and they move it into their church. And I'm only just giving the example of a few places or realms where we uh, we construct a magical other and then make expectations for the magical other to fulfill part of our own developmental work. And the, the real problem we run into is sometimes there are receiving institutions or human beings that are more than happy to pretend that they are the magical other. Exactly. And I think what James Hollis here is pushing back against is don't get sucked in. Or as soon as you wake up to the fact that you have been sucked in to the tribalism, to this idea that you have entered into a structure where there's an authority and there's a tribe and there's a one true that is when you know that you are in an, a spiritually immature system. Now, let's make clear here that uh, it's immature. That doesn't mean it's evil or wicked. It just means it's not mature. And so we don't want to place um, a hard judgment on it, but we do want to wake up to the fact that it is not who we are here to become. Right. We want to recognize that something is immature so that we can then move out of the immature stance and into something that is more in keeping with our potential as children of divine heritage. Yeah, and, and, the, and the flip side of that, and he points this out, is that it is scary. Yeah. So on the one hand, we say, okay, I, I've decided I don't want to hand over my personal authority anymore because I, I can tell there are things here that, that don't jive with what I'm experiencing. And he talks about using your experiences and holding your experiences up against what the authorities are telling you. But... The flip side, the alternative is to go out into the unknown as we're learning for ourselves, and it is scary. And so people say, okay, well, I don't like the authority, but I don't like the scary world either. So I would rather go back and submit to the known authority, which can be abusive, and it can be infantilizing, and it can be um, growth inhibiting. And yet, because the alternative is the unknown, which is scary, we go back and willingly submit to it like the mm -hmm. abused wife who keeps going back to the abusing husband, because at least she knows what she's going to get with the abusing husband instead of leaving and having to face the world on her own. Well, and what you just described there is by def by definition, it's, it's immature. It's, it's saying I growing is too scary. It's scarier to grow and move into the anxiety of the unknown to mature, to do the thing I haven't yet done. That's too scary. And so I will actually submit to something that may not be progressive, may not be oriented towards my growth, but at least it's familiar. Right. And so let's just, um, if it, are you, is it okay to move on or do you have yeah. anything else you want to say? Okay. So let's move on. If we may, something else that Hollis talks about in terms of how to recognize when we are moving into a mature spirituality is he actually talks about and helps us better understand what do those systems look like that tend to cultivate 
immature spirituality. And we are talking here about big religion. Okay. So all religions, Christian and otherwise do have a tendency to have their Orthodox arm. And then each church tends to have a, a work on a continuum where you move from early stage faith and go all the way through where there are those who are able to stay in, but also live in this place of later faith development. So what he's actually here talking about is the two forms of early stage religion and what they tend to look like. I thought this was incredibly fascinating. Um, do you want me to read it or do you want to read this section okay. here? Okay. So he says this, uh, he says one branch. So this is, uh, like, as I mentioned, there are two forms of immature spirituality. Uh, form number one inf infantilizes its flock by making them feel guilty, reminding them how they fail to measure up to impossible standards of moral perfection. This strategium is infantil. I never can say this word right. It's a tough one. This strategium is infantilizing because it activates the parent parental images inside of the heads of most of us. Once evoked, this parental image threatens both punishment and the withdrawal of approval, either of which proves devastating to the child. Okay, let's go. I'm going to close the quote and pause here because we we won't spend too much time on this, but we have talked about this yeah, so much. That's kind of what we've talked about is this idea that uh, a, a mean, angry, uh, abusive father figure God is the, the God of this form of early, of early mature or immature spirituality. Okay. Uh, form number two is this, this is Hollis again speaking. He says, on the other hand, these are the slick types who tell people what they most want to hear that you can have your wishes granted by right conduct, by right thinking and by right practice. While this hubristic opportunist quid pro quo was blasted to smithereens millennia ago by the wisdom of the Ecclesiastes and Job, what sells better today than wish fulfillment and modern materialism, hedonism, and narcissism? Why wouldn't any of us want to get right with the big guy upstairs who can, sh who can shower largesse upon our small lives? This theology is disguised boosterism, sales pitching, and motivationalism, and it ratifies greed, narcissism, and the desire for a stroll on easy street. What double trauma will these people experience when the real world happens to them again, as it always does? Okay, let's close the quote. Close the quote. So the two types of immature spirituality are the prosperity gospel which is the second one you mentioned and then the mean parents a gospel the punitive punitive god shame mm -hmm. and sadly as i was really reflecting on this in my own early musings and then again as i was reviewing for this time together with you nathan is oh boy do we do both of these yeah we're actually really good at both of them I'm, I, that's a, I had the same thought <laughs> so i kind of thought well you know some churches probably really privilege one over the other but we seem to be equal opportunity in in this particular realm i'm sorry to report do you have anything else you want to say about that as we think about uh as we move through mature spirit into mature spirituality nathan i i think we've kind of already touched on the the effects of both of those yeah um which is again handing over your happiness to somebody else yeah yeah let's spend a second if we if i i would like to actually talk a little bit more about something that Hollis touches on that really, really impacts me. And I thought a lot about, okay, let's see how well I can do about this. So he talks about as we are making 
deeper meaning of our relationship with God in an attempt to have a more mature spirituality. He helps, he at least helped me better understand the worship of idols, idolatry. And it was James Hollis who taught me that the, the worship of idols is the worship of dead things, meaning things that do not resonate with me, even though I have been taught them before, I have to let go of because it doesn't actually bring me closer to God. Okay, so he talks about the phenomenology of God as mystery. And I'm going to do my very best to, to try to describe this because it's kind of a newer concept for me. And so I'm not so sure I'm going to do a good job. So I might fumble around a little bit. And maybe what I'll actually do is I'll start by reading a little section from him and then, and then riff off of what he says. So James Hollis says this, we need to consider for a moment the phenomenology of the encounter with mystery. When we are in the presence of the genuine other, we are moved, shaken, stirred, attracted or terrified as the case may be. What arises from that phenomenological experience is the epiphenomenon, namely the image that arises from the experiences and generates our vehicle for relating to the the transcendent other. The image and our understanding, however provisional, are not the mystery. They are the byproducts of the mystery. Still, it is in the nature of the human ego consciousness to fixate upon the image or of that provisional formulation as the testimony of our need to demystify things, to understand them, and perhaps even to control them. But in so doing, we reify, harden, concretize the image or the understanding, and in time are wed to the epiphenomenon and not to the mystery itself. So we codify and institutionalize our experiences, and the more we operate within these territories, within these tertiary elaborations, however sincere our intent, the more removed we are from the mystery. Okay, let me just see if I can describe this to you in my own words. An encounter with God is something that cannot be explained. It is something that is felt. It is something that is experienced and witnessed within our bodies and our souls. It is something that is precious and sacred and is something by default that is mystery to each of us. The sacred experience is not something that can be wrapped in words. And yet at the same time, most of us try to do that. And so the experience with the sacred itself, the mystery itself is the phenomenon. And then what happens is inevitably as meaning-making creatures, we try to create something that has words and meanings and something that's visual. So we turn the mystery of God, the phenomenon itself into an epiphenomenon, which is God is a white man. Mm -hmm. And the moment that we turn mystery or the phenomenon itself into an epiphenomenon is the moment we begin to lose God. And religion itself has the, um, the trouble of trying to codify mystery. And in so doing, it oftentimes loses mystery. And so whereas in the very, very beginning, it may actually be trying really hard to help us better understand the nature of God. Most of the time, something is lost because we get really, really hooked on the picture, the image, the description of God and other kinds of um of religious phenomenon and the associated rules and the rules associated with how to be in connection with them. And the very best way I like to think about this, uh, just one other way to that I 
make sense of this somewhat complex idea is let's just say for a moment, Nathan, that you and I, we love to go to Hawaii and let's just say we, we go to Hawaii one time and we have the experience of Hawaii. And then we are so excited about Hawaii that we end up buying a lot of maps of Hawaii and a lot of, we take a lot of photos of Hawaii. And then rather than returning back to Hawaii, which is something that can only be felt inside of our bodies in the moment, we spend our lives obsessed with maps mm-hmm. of Hawaii. And we can look at the names of the cities. We can even look at the pictures. We can look at the directions. We can look at the maps. And sometimes religion departs from the experience of Hawaii and becomes an obsession with a piece of paper with uh, scribbles on it that remind us that Hawaii is a place somewhere, but it's not Hawaii. That's a fantastic description. And I think it's exactly what we do with so many things in the church. Like, for instance, let's say the temple. We have taken the temple and the covenant path, and we have forgotten that it's the atonement that saves us. It's not the covenant path, and it's not the temple. It's the atonement of Jesus Christ. And to, to me, that's a big miss that our church is just hammering on this covenant path so hard. Because to me, the covenant path is like your description of Hawaii. It's like, why would I need to go to Hawaii if I have the map? Why would I need to worry about my relationship with Jesus Christ? I'm on the covenant path. And, and I think that's a really, a really good example. The one that I was thinking of uh, when I read that section uh, is when you have, for instance, like a, a, a deeply connected relationship with a husband and wife. OK, so let's say your husband and wife or, um, you know, have a deep relationship and, and it's very spiritual and, and there's you know, a sexual component to that. And so then we say, well, that's a that's a really important part of, of relationships and connection. So let's make a bunch of rules about, you know, gender and sex. And then let's make a bunch of rules around how we dress. And then let's make a bunch of rules about how many earrings we're going to wear. Because we take something that's a, an, a, an experiential, just like you said, like going to Hawaii, it's, it's an experiential thing that, that's very powerful. And then we make it about a bunch of rules. And then the only thing we can suddenly talk about are the rules or the maps or the pictures. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you that, that those are some analogies that help kind of paint the picture of what sometimes we miss. Thank you for that. Very good. And I, yeah, I hadn't thought about it from your perspective either. And I really like that. And I think what I want, I'm hoping that what we're picking up on as we are really unpacking this here together is that immature spirituality codifies things and reifies things. It wants to put its thumb on something and say, this is important. This maybe once for someone was mystery. And so we're going to create a structure around it. We're going to help you see, feel, hear, and taste what we think it ought to taste like, feel like, sound like, look like. And then we're going to create a bunch of rules around it. And so what it actually does in the process is it murders it. It takes the mystery of the thing away in the service of trying to uh, codify it and turn it into something that becomes, uh, that, that, that I think the church is doing to preserve it. But in the act of trying to preserve it, it is lost. Well, I feel like that's a complex topic. I hope that makes sense. No, it, it makes well it made sense to me. Yes. And if it didn't make sense to you, and then I'd highly recommend you go read James Hollis's book yes. <laughs> because 
sometimes these concepts have to be read and reread a few times in order to uh, really grasp the very different way of thinking that he's trying to introduce. And he's not the only one who, who writes on things like this, but this, this is a, this is a very useful book. Like I said, it's, it's one of them. What I identify as one of my five most influential books in helping me see the world differently. You know, one thing I want to just say before we close this episode up, Nathan, is I was thinking about this this morning as I was studying and I went on a walk this morning and I was contemplating and, you know, doing some listening and things like that. And what occurred to me that kind of just blew my mind is that if you think about, let's just use the example of the masculine divine for a moment. The masculine divine has been codified and reified, meaning in the church at least. And I was actually, I think I was actually listening to the episode that Brandon and I just dropped uh, a time or two ago on the uh, the the old white guy in the white robe. And we were talking a lot about removing or challenging these constructs of God as an old white man. And we were looking at racism, we were looking at uh, sexism. And I was also thinking about what you and I were going to talk about today. And I was thinking, oh, there's a perfect example of, of a God who has been codified. We have a bunch of rules and dogma and ways of thinking and looking and experiencing God, including punitive, hard to be around, need, are needing to have a savior. Do you see what I'm saying? Like all of these stories that have been wrapped around this masculine divine. Okay. Also, as I was, I was pondering and studying this, I go on these long walks and you now know the workings of my mind. I'm all over the place. But what occurred to me as I was really musing over all of these things is um, as unfortunate as it is that we have such a distant relationship with our mother in heaven, it did occur to me that mother in heaven has not been codified by the church. This is a complex thing because I'm not, I'm not glad that she has been erased, but in so doing, she also has not been taken over by and co-opted by a bunch of rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, Many of us, as we are studying and coming into a unique and sacred relationship with Heavenly Mother, are doing so on our own terms without all of the extra baggage of the church. Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? I was yeah. reading a, a Sontag's book, The Mother Tree, and that's what kind of came up for me is, is the, the, the mixed blessing of, no, we have lost our mother in heaven, but yes, we've, we, we haven't lost her. The church has buried her, but we, as her children, can have a relationship with her on our own terms that is not tainted, tainted by what the church has uh, turned her into, which is a loss of mystery. Interesting. Yes. So, okay, we are only halfway through this conversation. We are going to finish up next episode on this beautiful chapter from the book, Living an Examined Life, and we are going to, next time be reviewing with everyone five components to a mature spirituality. So hang in there with us and we will see you next time with that. In the meantime, if you have not rated or reviewed this podcast, Latter-day Struggles, please do so. It's really, really helpful. It helps other people get to know us. Also, if you're interested in one of my, my processing groups, or if you want to buy one of my online courses, jump over to latterdaystruggles.com and be a part of a lot of the offerings that I have for you to help you through your faith expansion journey. It's always such a pleasure to be with so many of you. I love the letters you send over 
to me. I'm so grateful for all of the love and support that I get. And I will talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.